Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Sean. Hey. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. Hello. <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you would like to share your support. So let's get right into it. Hui, what's your first question? All right. So this is from JJ from Alaska. What's up, dudes? Love the podcast. Great hearing other people's questions and about things and problems that I have not encountered yet. Well, hopefully you don't ever encounter problems, but uh, you don't know what you don't know. That's very true. Regarding thin kerf blades, seems like you guys didn't like them. I bought a Freud thin kerf ripping blade for my underpowered Delta from Lowe's. That Freud thin kerf blade completely changed my saw for the better. Huge difference. Anyway, were you guys worried about flex or something with the thin kerf? I didn't understand. So I wanted to revisit this because I think maybe there was a misunderstanding. I actually have never had a problem with thin kerf blades. I, I had a thin kerf blade for my contractor saw, my Delta contractor saw. It was probably a precursor to the Delta that you have, JJ. And it worked perfectly fine. Now, I did have a blade stiffener with it because it came with a blade stiffener when I bought the saw from uh, used on Craigslist. The reason why I actually like using full kerf or standard kerf blades is because it's a full eighth of an inch. And when I'm doing trenching cuts, particularly for, say, like drawer bottoms, I like having that eighth of an inch because I know it's a predictable width. And I know that two passes is going to get be more than enough for me to put quarter inch piece of plywood for a drawer bottom, say for like a shop cabinet. Personally, I have nothing against thin kerf blades. I do know people have had issues with flex and deflection. For me, I did not have that issue. But now, since I've moved and transitioned to, to using a cabinet saw, I like having that thicker blade because it's predictable and everything's calibrated to it. I know that another benefit to using thin kerf blades is because it's 33% less material that it's cutting out. So you're having less uh, sawdust and whatnot. But to be honest, you know, I have no issues with a thin kerf blade. And Sean, I know you've used thin kerf blades before. Like, did you have any issues with deflection or whatnot? My second table saw, this is after I bought the um, $69 skill saw down a Black Friday sale at, at Lowe's. <laughs> My second saw was a one and three quarter horse craftsman hybrid saw. So I only ran thin kerf blades through that. And I don't know if I, I don't even remember what I said in this episode, in the episode, but I, I've never had an issue with it. Um, flexing or anything like that. I was actually a, a fan of it, but I do also understand the benefits of having an, a full curve blade, like you said, we, but if, if it completely changed the saw, there's nothing wrong with it. If your cuts are good and it's not bogging down, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, go with the thin curve saw. I think an important thing is also making sure that you get a blade that's a high quality blade that has plenty of carbide on it to be resharpened again, because I, I just don't like throwing away blades, you know, just buying it once and then it gets dull and, and, and thrown it away. So just making sure that there's plenty of carbide there for, for sharpening. A good blade's, you know, $100 plus, and yeah. I would agree with you. But it takes a lot of sharpening to really screw up the carbide on something like that. Mm -hmm. As far as the thin blade thing goes, I've never used one, so I wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. Before I had the table saw, the table saw I used for most of my life 
was a one and three quarter horsepower craftsman contractor saw. Mm-hmm. I always had a full curve blade on that thing. And mm-hmm. I was ripping through, you know, two, two and a half inch hard maple with it. I didn't have any issues. Yeah. I've never seen the, really seen the need for thin, thin curve blade. So I can't really attest to, you know, whether or not uh, the blade deflects or not or anything like that. I can understand why it would work better on an underpowered saw than a full curve blade. But you're, you're talking, you know, I don't even know what the, the, the width of those thin curve blades are. They a 16th of an inch? 332nd. 332nd. Yeah. Okay, so we're, thought, we're talking a 32nd of an inch. I really don't think a 32nd of an inch is going to make that much of a difference. That's just me. I could be wrong. I was wrong once before. I remember <laughs> the day very well. Um, One thing to keep in mind is, you know, it, if you have a, a, a lesser powered saw, you're going to have to slow down on your feed rate. So that could be something that you got to take into consideration as well. If you're using a full curve versus a thin curve, you, you just got to slow it down a little bit if you're using that, that full curve on an underpowered saw. You know, maybe that's something that that you got to take into consideration as well. I still think that that thirty second of an inch is not that big of a deal. And again, I could be mistaken, but I I, I think it's one of those urban legend kind of things where mm. I'm going to disagree with you on this, just so we could uh, disagree. <laughs> that's fine. Let me finish what I was saying. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it's just something somebody came up with once, and it just kind of stuck. Uh, that's mm. just my that's just my opinion. I'm, I said I'm probably mistaken. Well, I mean, I've used both on the one and three quarter horsepower saw, and I could tell a difference. And again, it just comes back to the feed rate. You know, a thinner mm-hmm. blade, I could push it a little bit faster and a little, you know, a little easier than a full eighth curve blade. But again, if you just want to slow down a little bit, I, I see no issues with using a full curve blade, but it all depends on his setup. He said it made a big difference. It, you know, he could just be looking at, he could have had a, his full curve blade could have been the one that came with it. It was a lower quality blade. It caused some burning or something versus a, a higher premium thin curve blade. So I think we got to know a little bit more of the background of what he's coming from and going to. Yeah, he said he had a Freud thin curve, but I mean, there's a, a wide range of Freud blades. Absolutely. So who knows? I mean, he might have the highest quality Freud thin curve blade. And really, the, the chemistry behind these blades now is so good, you know, where they're able to get blades that are extremely stiff. So, you know, maybe that's no longer an issue. I, I don't know because uh, I had a blade stiffener on my table saw because it came with it when I bought it used. Maybe blade deflection is another one of those urban myths that, you know, now that uh, the meteorological chemistry behind the, the wow. blades that are being, I know, huge words, right, <laughs> uh, that are of uh, the blades that are being used now, it just doesn't matter anymore. So uh, by all means, if it works, heck, man, use it. Yeah. Well, I think we're on to the next question, Guy. All right. This question is from Ralph Brackney, and it's a short one. I'm interested to know before YouTube and Instagram, who inspired you? That's a that's a good question. Wow. I would have to say Norm Abrams. Oh yeah. Inspired me quite a bit. I remember when that stuff first came out and we we're watching it and it's like, oh, this guy's so good. It it really inspired me and 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 uh sparked something in me to to do more furniture projects than the kind of stuff I was doing at the time, which was more hacked together crap. Mm-hmm. That would be my pick. Hui? Oh, man, it. 
I mean, now I, that I've said Norm, I've just like taken all the air <laughs> out of it. You took all the, all the air out of my balloon. Uh, no, but seriously, yeah, I was watching Norm Abrams as well. You had to have been like five years old. No, it was. <laughs> I mean, they were re, they were reruns. They did reruns. See, here yeah. the things: they were reruns on YouTube, right? So, so yeah. I mean, even in the advent of YouTube, I think everybody still knows New Yankee Workshop and Norbert Abrams. I mean, I even bought one of the books that uh, had all the plans and everything. Yep, man, I loved it. I loved it. I would watch it over and over and over again. And I mean, I can remember before I even had a table saw, I was just absorbing all of it. You know, I would only dream of a workshop that looked that wonderful and that organized with all that machinery. I'm very used to having YouTube, right? So even then, watching Norb Abrams on on YouTube was was very inspirational. How about you, Sean? Well, I guess I'm going to get a little tricky, and um, I got two answers. The first, I've never seen a, a full episode of uh, Norm's show, whatever <laughs> channel that was on. Heretic! Yeah. <laughs> Heretic! Yeah, I know. Sorry, but I would catch um, Roy Underhill on PBS, um, oh, yeah. the Woodwright shop. Now, l- let me ask a question about this. He said before YouTube and Instagram, he didn't say before the internet, because when I first started woodworking, I don't think the Wood Whisperer was on YouTube yet. I think he still uploaded all of his videos to his local video host. So I don't know if that's getting too technical or not. But for me, it was the Woodwright and Spagnolo 100% before he was putting stuff on YouTube. Yeah, for sure. You can't deny the fact that he was very much I- instrumental to getting a lot of YouTubers on YouTube. To this day, I've still never watched Roy Underhill. I watched like 10 minutes of something once and I said, this is not for me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I Again, I, I don't have an opinion on him one way or the other because I've never really watched any of stuff. Yeah. I just remember him taking a log and hacking at it with a axe for five minutes and <laughs> blood and sweat flying everywhere. And I'm like, dude, use a table saw. <laughs> and I was like, I'm never watching this again. And I haven't watched it again. It's yeah. not for me because yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see the whole, I've got to do everything by hand mm-hmm. romanticism that, that goes along with that. That's just me being old and cynical. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Before YouTube and Instagram, you know, when I started woodworking, there was very little internet at that time. So everything was magazines and books, mostly magazines for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember reading, you know, articles in fine woodworking from, you know, like Christian Bexfort and uh, Phil Lowe and Michael Fortune and stuff like that. Yeah, big hitters. Yeah. So, so I think I have the next one and it's from R2 Woodworking. What is your biggest screw up slash mistake on a project? And what did you do to fix, cover up, or a notable screw up with a clever fix? Not the worst, but you got creative with the fix. I have a screw up that I was not clever enough to fix that I want to talk about that wasted time, a lot of lumber. And and after I screwed it up, I just completely abandoned the project. And when I... Dude, it, it destroyed me. Let me tell you. I think it was 2005. I started turning all the legs for a William and Mary high boy. I don't know if I talked about if I've talked about this before or not, but there's six or 12 legs and it has a nice dovetail uh, lowered cabinet. And, and when I went to glue it up, I had all the legs turned and the feet. I went to, to glue up the, the bottom case. And it has the front and the rear panel are the uh, the tails or the pins to the side dovetails. Like an idiot, I glued the side panels into the front panel 
and let it dry overnight, only to find out that you can't fit the back panel, which are the tail or the pins into the side tails. I mean, you'd have to have like a, a board stretcher to open it up <laughs> to fit it in there. So it just destroyed me. I mean, <laughs> I had the sides all cut, the detail, the front uh, had the detail, the tails and the pins were cut and I, I needed to glue the, uh, the front and the back and the sides together at the same time, but I couldn't fit the back panel in because the sides had the tails and the back had the pins. So no clever fix, tore it apart with a hammer, kept the feet and the legs and um, wasted a lot of five quarter uh, walnut. Oof, just, so you, you and, abandoned the project altogether. Yeah. It, well, the question was, is how did you fix it? He abandoned it. Your creative fix was making it into firewood. <laughs> I still have the parts just cut up with, yeah. And except for the sides, but there, yeah, there is no fix on that other than fixing stupid. And if I were to redo it, I would do it correctly. But yeah, there's no clever fix on this. Do you guys have any, uh, screw ups with the a pretty clever fix? I, I don't make mistakes. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what you just said is a mistake. So now you're going to have to fix it. Ouch. No, I, I mean, I, I screw stuff up all the time. And it's mostly procedural stuff like you just mentioned. I, I get ahead of myself and I glue something up before I shouldn't have. I've made a lot of mistakes. And sometimes I just toss the parts and just make the parts again. Mm-hmm. It's the easiest way to fix it. The The most recent I, I did just the other day, I was um, putting this case together I'm building and I'm using this new tool and I screwed up and I put the slots in a wrong spot. So I had to, you know, route out a recess and put a patch in and you're really not going to see them, but I'll know they're there. And if somebody really looks for them, they'll find them. The, the real kick in the nuts is that I made the mistake, I fixed it, and then I made the same mistake again. (laughs) Close to the same spot. What I did the first time was I I had a a story stick and I measured over 19 inches. I had a 36 inch story stick and Mm -hmm. I measured over 19 inches on one side, right? And I put it on the one side and I marked where I was gonna do this thing. And then instead of flipping it over, I marked it from the other side, the short side. Mm -hmm. Two inches too short. Yeah. So I put these things in the wrong spot and then I fixed it, remarked it. Okay. This is what I did. I'm not going to be stupid, but this time I put the, the slots on the wrong side of the line. Mm. Oh. oh man. So I had to make it, I had to fix it again. But we're, we all, all do stupid things. Yep. Um, you know, it just, just depends on what you do with it. But at least you didn't give up like I did, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't give up. I'm I'm too far invested in this project. I can't I can't go I can't go back. Yeah. Oh man, I was veneering. Probably this was the second time I'd ever used a vacuum bag. You put you left you left your hamster in there. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. After I had veneered the panel, I had put uh, a solid wood border around the veneer panel so it was an it looked like an inset panel and i wanted to create an under bevel well the border was dominoed in and i forgot how deep i had cut the dominoes and so when i went to the table saw to create an under bevel <gasps> i went too deep with my Come cut on. and oh, you can see the dominoes peeking through the solid wood edging so my clever fix was for it was to resaw some edge banding essentially, and I stuck it on 
and no one could be the wiser. I mean, I can see it uh, and I know where it was, but ultimately it's such a thin line and I was using a darker glue anyway. And after the cherry would patina uh, along with the garnet shellac that I was putting on top, you can't even see it. But man, when that happened, my heart sunk. I almost threw up, but I, I collected myself. I thought, okay, well, I can, I can edge band it. That's what I'll do. So, yeah. Yeah. You touched on something pretty important. And I know we've talked about it before is we're the only ones that are going to see this. If we're able to get close in a, in a fix or a cover up, it's going to be pretty darn good. Yeah. Well, I guess, is it back to me now? Yeah, it's back to you. Okay. So this one is from Hunter Robinson. He says, years ago, before I really got into woodworking, I painted some cheap quarter inch plywood for a project. I only painted one side and over very small amount of time, the pieces curled up like a taco shell. Since then, I've always finished both sides of plywood. I am currently making a shelving unit that will be wedged into a corner. I'm using three quarter inch blonde wood ply from the big box stores. The back side of the shelving unit will never be seen. On plywood this thick, do I still need to keep painting both sides? If so, does it need an equal number of coats on both sides? I actually think that, Hunter, the problem is that you bought cheap quarter-inch plywood and not necessarily that you just only painted one side, although that might have been a contributor. But I don't think that painting one side on a higher quality plywood would have caused it to taco shell. In the past, I've actually used that quarter-inch cheap plywood that you're talking about. And within a day or two, the thing just curled up. In fact, actually, I actually used that quarter-inch plywood as a, as a panel for some doors. And I could tell that even gluing the panels into the uh, stick-and-cope doors caused the door to actually warp a little bit. So I think it's more an issue of the fact that you're actually using cheap plywood. And what I would do is actually just take a piece of that three-quarter-inch blonde wood and just paint a piece of it, maybe, you know, like a 12 by 12 panel and see what happens. See if it actually curls. Cause I don't think that your issue is more so the paint as, or painting just one side. I think the issue is more so the plywood. What do you guys think? I really disagree with you on this way. Really? Yeah. See, I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to let guys, cause I know he was ready. <laughs> <laughs> it's quarter inch plywood. It's very thin and the mm -hmm. paint on it, I'm assuming I could, I may be mistaken, but I'm assuming you use the latex paint, which has water in it. If mm -hmm. you took a quarter inch piece of hardwood mm -hmm. and wet one side of it, it's going to curl. Okay. Okay. I don't care how cheap your plywood is. It's quarter inch thick. You only put water on one side and let it dry. So it's going to curl towards the other side. Mm -hmm. That's what happened here. I think if you use three quarter inch plywood, you can paint one side. I think you're going to be fine. Okay. Okay. I don't think you need to test it. You don't need to do anything. If you're worried about the plywood or the plywood curling, just put one coat of paint on the other side. That's all you need. You don't need to put three coats on one side and three coats on the other. And if, like I said, if you're worried about it, just put a, a, a coat of paint on one side of it before you butt it up against the wall. But mm -hmm. the problem that the originally that we're talking about here is not because it was cheap plywood. It's just because it was a quarter inch thick. When I had painted the quarter inch ply that was this, the panel, I, I had painted both sides. And that's why I, I was thinking in my mind that, well, 
why would it have curled if both sides were painted? You're, you're introducing water onto a real thin sheet of plywood. That's all it is. Sean, what's, what's your feelings? Yeah, I feel the, the same way. And, and if it were me, I would probably still put at least one coat of paint on the bottom side of the three-quarter ply because mm-hmm. it's not going to hurt anything. And are you going to mask it off? Are you, it's, even though you say it's never going to be seen, I would still put a coat on just to be safe. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could test it on a panel and see if you don't get any cupping if you don't put it on both sides, but I would play it safe and put it on both if, if it were me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. Well, there you go. I stand corrected. Well, no, you, <clears throat> I may be wrong. Like I said, I was wrong once before. As I said before, I don't remember the day very well. <laughs> I really think that it's the, it's a problem with just a thin piece of wood and putting water on one side is all it is. Mm-hmm. Like I said, if you want to go ahead and put paint on both sides, I, I it, it won't hurt anything like Sean said. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm apologizing to Hui on air if I if I shut him down pretty quick on that one. No, it's a, it, dude, it's fine, man. Yeah. <laughs> we all learned something from this. It's all good. All right. This is from Brent. He wants to ask a question about my joiner planer combo, and I thought this would be a good question because all three of us have joiner planer combos. Is there any issue with the combo machines having a shorter bed length for the planer aspect? Do you contend with snipe? If you do longer boards like eight foot, that's my only reservation about ordering a combo unit today. I believe I can deal with the short joiner bed, but never hear reviews on the shorter planer beds. If I order separate machines, I will get a 15 inch planer and most brands seem to have about twice planer bed length when comparing against the combo units. Thanks again, Brent. I have not had any issues with the short joiner beds at all in the least mainly because my my machine it's got a it runs at a much slower speed as far as the inches per minute or feet per minute however they term it where it goes underneath and i'm usually supporting it on the back end anyways i can also say with pretty surety in my in my in my uh, statement that I've never tried an eight-foot board on that machine. I've put six-foot boards through it, not eight-foot. And I haven't had any problems with the six-foot boards. Most of the time, when I have the longer boards, the joiner beds are more of an issue. And I got to really make sure I put a good amount of pressure on the outfeed table when I'm jointing. But as far as the planer beds go, I haven't had any issue at all. The the rollers hold the boards down really firm on that thing the thing's been a tank for me and i'm really glad i i have it are your rollers metal rollers yes one side is metal one side is rubber the mm. infeed is metal the outfeed is rubber mm-hmm. i've run an eight foot board through my planer bed and i've not had issues it grabs and it grabs really well uh so it keeps it tight to the planer bed now for smaller pieces as it's coming out if you're not there to catch it, it can actually, you know, fall on the floor. So, you know, that, you know, maybe a downfall of a shorter bed is that you got to be on the other side to catch those smaller pieces. No, that's just your cheap piece of garbage hammering. (laughs) I haven't had, (laughs) I haven't had any, I'm just teasing. I haven't had any problems with that. I mean, if I have a short board Mm -hmm. on mine, it it stays on the bed, Mm -hmm. even the long boards, it doesn't shoot it out all the way. Mm -hmm. So it's still, has got a piece underneath there and it, it stays until Unless I you bump it, it from behind. <laughs> Unless you bump it from behind, it stays. I mean, Sean, you have the same machine as I do. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've not had any issues, but again, I've maxed out at about five and a half, six feet like you guy and not had any issue uh, with snipe or anything like that. But uh, I'm pretty cautious on that. And I always am on the other side and I will lift up the end of the board just in case. If I'm running long boards like that, even if it's a four or five inch wide board, I'm only going to run one at a time and I'm going to be on the other end to support the end of the board. I mean, I've not had any issues with that on the on the joiner side. If I do have longer boards, six, seven, eight feet, I'm just going to use an in feed and an out feed roller, yeah. a roller stand and and it's all good to go from there. Yeah. yeah, I've used roller stands a couple times on the joiner. That and that that's always been the issue was the the joiner beds, mm-hmm. not necessarily the planer beds. But like I said, if you're if you're using the the joiner properly, you're putting most of your pressure on the outfeed side after it's passed over the heads. So mm-hmm. yeah, with a longer board, and I've done some six foot plus, not eight foot, but six foot plus boards, and I really had to be very conscious of how I was doing it. And I said, I think the joiner was a more of a concern than the planer. I'm just overly cautious. And like I was saying, I, I help support the board on, on the outfeed of the, the planer. You can always, if you're, you're not sure, you can always put roller stands on that as well. Yep. Yeah. The only problems, I wouldn't say problems. The only thing that has caused me some concern, I don't even know concern is the right word, on that machine is the uh, calibration of it it's a beast oh my gosh yeah yeah don't drink a pot of coffee before you decide to go out there and calibrate this machine (laughs) (laughs) and set aside at least half a day and then another half a day after you figure out that you didn't set it up right the first time you know what i'm talking about john (laughs) yeah i literally just went through that because i replaced my head with a uh the segmented cutter head so i had that thing taken completely apart and you know whenever you put in new knives and stuff you got to make sure everything is is set up right so switching the head i had to go through the whole thing again the in feed and out feed of the of the joiner and then making sure that the planer is still good i mean i adjusted everything and it takes a while because, I mean, oh, just man. like a 30-second of a turn on one of those Gibbs screws, yeah, it changes the whole thing. And <laughs> when you the- lock the table uh, on the, the table at the top, you lock it, the tighter you lock it, the more the, the table dips. Yeah, so I, I, I know that when I put the handles down, I've got to put them in a certain spot. Yeah. Perfectly vertical. I can't go too far, but I can't go... Not enough. I'm not going to lie. Nine times out of 10, I'm just going to leave it unlocked um, or just barely in place because it, it just moves too much. Yeah. Now, I know you don't have those problems at all on the hammer, right, Hui? I, I haven't experienced any issue with calibration. Don't they come out and calibrate the machine for you with the, the hammer service? Uh, if you need it. It comes uh, pre-calibrated. Oh, I was just joking, by the way. I didn't know that they did that or offered that as a service. <laughs> no, they did. Yeah, a, a, a guy comes in a, in a Mercedes van <laughs> wearing wearing a tuxedo <gasps> and white gloves and comes into your house. And All joking aside, I did call Jet and asked if there was anybody in my area that would I, I could pay to do this because it is such a pain in the butt. Unfortunately, there there's nobody in my in my area that would do this because I was willing to pay them whatever to get it done. Because it it just takes so long. Yeah, it was a pain. So tedious. Now that I've got mine dialed in, I, I shot some uh, Loctite down to the threads. Yeah. So they don't move on me. Yeah. I haven't had any issues since. I don't get any snipe. 
The biggest problem I had was with snipe on the jointer, not on the planer. But once I got rid of that, I got some of the the weak Loctite, not the red stuff. I think it was the, like blue. the blue. Yeah. Yeah. And I shot it down in there so none of those screws would move through vibration. So I wouldn't have mm. to do it again. I agree with you. It's it's a pain in the butt. But once you get it set up, it's not going to move on you. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Who's got the next one? I do. And this one is from Luke. I just want to say thank you guys for sharing your wealth of knowledge on the subject of woodworking. I work as a law enforcement officer and listening to your podcasts on my way home from work helped me not only unwind, but expand my understanding of the craft. I am a hobbyist who is just getting into woodworking and was curious if you guys could point me in the right direction of specific written literature so I can really nail down the basics before moving on to a more complex, complex tasks. Thanks again, Luke. I've mentioned a couple of these books, maybe just one of them um, in previous podcasts, but I want to start over and say that for uh, there's three or four books that I would recommend after having them for a while and, and read them, not all the way through, but a, a good reference uh, pieces. And the beginning is the uh, Mark Spagnolo book, the essential joinery uh, book that's going to show you how step by step on how to cut the all of the joinery from butt joints to dovetails to um, butt. <laughs> <laughs> mortise and tenons and and it's going to give you the the fundamentals of uh and, and show you how to do the basic uh essential joinery like the title of the book uh it's a really good book pictures are great and the instructions are awesome and the second book is the why and how of woodworking by mike pekovich it's going to cover more of like talking about making shop time matter and what you need to do when you're out there to make the most of it. Talk a little bit about designing your pieces and, and how he you know goes about doing that and some tips, um, some hand skills about what a good starter set for hand tools. Uh, and then he goes and covers a couple of different designs uh, from cabinets to boxes and chests, casework, tables, and, and some basic easy to apply finishes um, are what you're going to find in that book. A third book that I find uh, very valuable uh, and invaluable is The Anarchist's Tool Chest by Chris Schwarz. Wow, that's a tongue twister from the Lost Art Press. And this book really recovers the fundamentals of hand tools from what you need to pick up, why you need it, and how to, I think he even covers how to use it, uh, some of the tools in here. Just a really good book on hand tools. And at the end of the book, he shows you how to build a, a really nice tool chest using the uh, the hand tools. Can you explain to me why he called it the anarchist tool chest? No. <laughs> I'm just wondering. I've always wondered why it's the anarchist tool chest. I couldn't, I, honestly, I, I couldn't tell you that. It may even say it in the book and I just glossed over it, but I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, it's okay. a good question. I should probably. Chris, if you're, if you're listening right in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and my fourth book is uh, Rodale's Illustrated Cabinet Making. And this is the book oh, we've yeah. talked about before. Mm-hmm. And these books are going to get you started, uh, especially the Illustrated Cabinet Making. It's going to show you how pieces are constructed. And it's going to show you the joinery methods. And very, very, very awesome book. And it's going to show you all kinds of different pieces of furniture, from tables to cabinets to all kind to chairs. And it's going to show you dimensions and mm-hmm. multiple different ways to do the joinery. Uh, these four books are going to get you started, but again, you need to start with a good project to get your, your feet wet and all that stuff. And these books are going to aid you in understanding how to cut the joinery, how to size the piece, how, how to use the hand tools, what hand tools you need. But these books are what I would recommend to, uh, to get you started. What about you guys? 
I like this book, Joinery, by Gary Rogowski. He actually runs a school called the Northwest Woodworking Studio. I know a couple people that have gone actually and taken classes with him. But the book is really good. I think it's well written. Uh, has uh, everything from dovetails and finger joints, mortise and tenon, rabbits, dados, grooves, um, lap joints, bridle joints. It's a pretty pretty comprehensive book. Uh, I like it a lot. I've used it. I've referenced it uh, on several occasions. Another book that I think is uh, a, a great benefit is called Understanding Wood, A Craftsman Guide to Wood Technology. And it's by Bruce Hoadley, H-O-A-D-L-E-Y. Uh, one thing that we uh, I tend to focus a lot on is the process and uh, the act of actually joining pieces of wood together. But something that that has taken me a little bit uh, longer to understand is actually understanding how wood moves and how and how it interacts with the environment. Uh, and so this book is really great because it, it goes through how wood is processed, the, the drying process, and why we use wood the way we use it and understanding the expansion contraction of wood. It, it's just a really great wo- uh, book to to really understand the actual product that we're using to make furniture. Those are two books that I, that I highly recommend. Is it to me now? Yep. I'm not going to recommend any books because you guys recommended, well, Sean recommended everything I was going to say. So <laughs> yeah. I got nothing left. Books are great. Uh, there's a lot of written stuff out there. I'm going to talk about periodicals or magazines. Mm-hmm. I know Wood Magazine, Woodsmith or Shop Notes, I think are basically the same thing, but Woodsmith, and I think fine furniture or fine woodworking also will sell you a complete archive of every magazine they've ever published on a USB stick for like 60 to 70 80 dollars. Mm-hmm. These are great resources. They're all search. I know I've got two of them and you can research till the cows come home. There's tons of articles in these things. And a lot of very good advice. I know you can't read that, but you can read it on your on your computer monitor, I guess. Or you can print them out probably too. Yep. I, I really recommend those things. I, and I most of the, the stuff that I reference back to is I actually am a, a member of finewoodworking.com. And I can go back and uh, reference all their magazines. And I've also got a USB stick for wood magazine and one for shop notes because they've got some great shop jigs and fixtures and stuff like that i didn't realize wood magazine and shop notes had had a archive yeah i'll have to check that out it's not online you have to buy the usb stick right right yeah i guess just one final note on this uh how i started pretty much is i found a project and i think it was a fine woodworking magazine they had a project in there that i wanted to build and then I would just reference material like this and and online YouTube and other places like that on how to cut the joinery. Like the first thing I'd run into would be cut the mortise and tenon. Okay, I didn't really understand how to do that, so I would reference the the material, learn how to do the joinery, and then continue with the the project until I ran into the next roadblock of something that I didn't understand how to do, and just keep going. And then you'll you'll build up that experience as you continue to to knock out more projects. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good point. If you've got some spare time and some wood scraps laying around, you know, practice. Yeah. Practice makes perfect. You know, the exactly. more times you do something, the easier it becomes and the better you get at it. 
I had a question today on a post I put on Instagram. It's like, how do you know this is working? And I just said, you know, because I've done it a bazillion times. I know it's I know it's going to work for me. Yep. I don't have to question it anymore. So mm-hmm. practice is always a good thing too. Yeah, and it's important when you're first starting is to not worry about designing your own pieces. Like let the professionals handle that for the time being. <laughs> just get the fundamentals under your belt and, and start yeah. just building stuff. Because if you got to worry about design, the sizes, and this and that, you're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And finally, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. Hui, who do you have for us? I don't know who, what his name is, but the Instagram handle is B-B-U-M-S-L-I-F-E. B-Bums Life, I guess is what you would call it. Beach Bums Life. <laughs> Beach Bums Life. Uh, he's from Seoul, South Korea, and he actually has a school that uh, he teaches folks how to make stools and sculpted rockers, tables, chairs, lounge chairs, really great stuff, really beautiful pieces that he's teaching folks how to make. Give him a follow. Uh, he's he's doing some really awesome sculpted work, a lot of chairs, which I really enjoy seeing. So give him a follow. I think you'll enjoy him. All right. That sounds pretty good. Uh, Guy, who do you have for us? I've got Tim Noon of Tim Noon Furniture Design. That's Tim underscore Noon with an E at the end of it, underscore furniture design. He is a furniture maker and uh, cabinet maker from Australia, New South Wales. Mm. He's got a really good feed. He does a lot of mid-century modern stuff, which is not my cup of tea, but I've been following him for a while. And uh, he does some he does some really nice work, man. And he's got a really good feed. He, he posts a lot ton of pictures a lot of process shots which i really like just not the beauty shots that a lot of people do um it's good feed got some great stuff on here so it's it's well worth a a follow okay so my pick is hal taylor he is at hal taylor underscore rocks Uh, he designs and builds some really beautiful sculpted rocking chairs like god was saying on his pick Uh, showcases a lot of his behind the scenes pictures and process photos. Uh, Very, very talented. Definitely worth the follow. Uh, That's Hal Taylor rocks, H A L T A Y L O R underscore rocks on Instagram. And I think that will do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have any woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. Or don't forget, you can DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life. And we are running out of questions. So guys, please send us some questions. Yes. Anything. Doesn't have to be. It can be beginner. It doesn't matter. Send us questions. Uh, we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. Don't forget, guys, it really helps in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at SimpleCove.com and at SimpleCove on Instagram and YouTube. What about you? Where can you be found? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. And finally, Guy, where can we find you? Guyswoodshop.com. Awesome. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple weeks. See you guys. Adios.